Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, we, we got a lot going on. That, 
Beth and I, we have been out and about for three weekends in a row now. And, uh, We're looking forward to a weekend like just our two weeks. <laughs> this coming weekend. This coming weekend. <laughs> yeah, this weekend we got, um, what are we, what are we at this weekend? I don't, I, I don't recall. But we have tours this weekend, Friday and Saturday night. There's still tickets available, so please, by all means, come on out and join us. But Capitol Hill is a thing that's happening sometime this month for sure. Yeah. But one of the last weekend. But anyway, but it's on our website. So yeah, everything's live on our website. All right, so let's dive into this, shall we? Sure, why not? Okay. So aside from being, of course, legislative hotspots, the mansions of the political elite often seem to be magnets for those who have passed beyond the mortal realm. Whether they are drawn to our opulent surroundings or if they can seem to relinquish the reins of political power, they are. There are still many spirits who linger around these homes long after they've passed away. So some of the stories we're going to tell you in these two uh, episodes are older governor mansions that are no longer in use, mm-hmm. but are museums now. And Old. other ones are actually the actual governor's mansion that's still in use. There is one where the governor's mansion is gone. Yeah. But that'll be, that'll be the last one for this evening. So just a little foreshadowing. This, yeah. is, this is not a thought. Not all of them are places that you can necessarily visit. But it is what it is. They're great stories. Yeah. And this was a fun dive for me. Yeah. All right. So we're going to start in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, this is an often overlooked state when it comes to historical discussions. The stretch of land along the northern border of the United States is a fascinating, um, excuse me, has a fascinating list of historical sites. From private homes to military bases and villages to natural wonders, there's so much to explore beyond those who love to look back through the historic record. One of these places can be visited, and it's an incredibly unique mansion that stands out for the remarkable appearance alone. Adding to the fact that it is the one-time home of the governor of North Dakota makes it that much more interesting. Located in the capital city of Bismarck, this mansion is surely going to catch your eye if you pass by it. The first thing that they, people will notice about it is the unusual coloring, a combination of shades of green that isn't what you usually see on today's houses. But this place has a history that sets it apart from those residences. The grand two-and-a-half-story mansion was originally built in 1884 for a fast-moving entrepreneur, Asa Fisher, who had an interesting work history. He was a wholesale liquor dealer, a registrar of the Bismarck Land Office, and president of the First National Bank. Five years after moving into the house, North Dakota became the 39th state in 1889, and four years after that, in 1893, Asa Fisher sold the mansion to the relatively new state for $5,000, which was a tremendous amount of money at that point in time. The Fisher Mansion became the official residence of the uh, governor of North Dakota, Washington. What are you doing? He's thinking about leaving. Now, um, 20 governors and their families have lived in this mansion. Of course, the style and the decor inside of the mansion changed based on the taste of the family that was living there. In 1960, a new governor's mansion was built, and they moved out of this mansion. From 1960 to 1975, it was used as offices for the state health department. And in 1975, the Historical Society of North Dakota was given the house with hopes that it would then operate as a historic house museum. It was a long and frustrating process to restore this grand mansion. Wallpaper was custom made from studying the many layers of wallpaper that was carefully removed from the walls. 
furniture collected and bought and donated exhibits were established to teach people about the painstaking process of restoration. And along with this house, the historic site has also got the original carriage house for the governor, a bright yellow and red structure that turns clearly stands apart from the house and is clearly part of the estate. Between the architectural details and the eye-catching colors, this iconic Bismarck home just draws you in. And that's part of the reason why the home is believed to house a number of spirits. The place that drew them in and never let them go. In 1898, the then governor of North Dakota, Frank Briggs, died of tuberculosis in the master bedroom of the house. According to legend, his spirit has never left. Visitors to the mansion and people who work there today have heard footsteps, seen doors open and close on their own, curtains moving with no wind, feeling a tap on their sh shoulder with no one there uh, have, excuse me, no one there have all been reported. Jonathan Campbell, who was a longtime employee at the mansion, shared his own creepy experience. He said, in the upstairs in the servants' quarters, I was there, and I changed out the 100-year-old lights that were hanging on wires from the ceiling. And after I placed them with some modern pull chains, I was there cleaning up my mess with a vacuum, and as I was doing that, the hair on my arm stood up. I just got this chill, and I had to leave the room. I went out to the hallway. I called my wife, and she's like, yes. Yeah, Whatever. As I was talking to her on the phone, my phone suddenly died. The battery from his phone was suddenly drained, and what may have been a different kind of energy in the room. As for the new fixture, Campbell recalled, for years we could not keep that light working. The pulse chain would keep seizing up, I would replace the whole fixture, and it would do it again. Perhaps somebody was displeased with the modern nature of the fixture. It was in that space that Governor Biggs reportedly collapsed from his system symptoms and he worsened. The governor may be disapproving of the removal of life when it was, uh, that was there when he was in need. Excuse me, that was odd. With that said, reservations in general tend to be recognized as a trigger for paranormal activity. The theory is that spirits who have grown accustomed to their surroundings basically don't appreciate it when you change their environment. So they can show their disapproval in a number of ways. One is a dramatic and clear signal that we would see as sabotage or outright destruction of a newly installed fixture or furniture. It also makes sense when you think about it. How would you feel if the home that you loved is suddenly upended by a stranger? Now, regarding the North Dakota's governor's mansion in particular, the issues with the renovations and the paranormal are reported back to uh, actually go back over a century. In 1907, Governor Burke renovated, a, uh, renovated the considerable bottle room attic space in the mansion. Part of it became a playroom for the Burke children, and the rest of the space uh, became an apartment for their butler and cook, Tom Lee. It's possible that this is when the entity of Governor Briggs became active, because this is when Tom Lee started to sleep on the second floor porch in a hammock when the Burke family wasn't home. He insisted that the mansion was haunted by Governor Briggs and refused to sleep in his attic rooms when he was alone in the mansion. Whether it's Governor Briggs in the attic or perhaps another entity, Tom Lee isn't the only one to have experienced activity there. Modern-day staffers are often hesitant to speak of their experiences in the attic. Perhaps they don't wish to irritate the unsettled spirit anymore, 
than they already have, of course. It also piqued interest of those in the paranormal, including author Lori Orser, who wrote the book, Spooky North Dakota. In preparing for her book, she visited the mansion and was wandering around recording her thoughts on a voice recorder. While she had not intended for the recording to be any part of an investigation, she was uh, rather shocked when she heard what she did when she went back to review her notes. At the moment she approached the stairs to the attic, they were roped off and closed to visitors. Lori was musing to herself about the closure, and her recorder caught a very clear, don't go up. A positive spin on this might be the spirit was just trying to be helpful to the staffers and didn't want any guests wandering up there. Given the skittish nature of the staffers when discussing the attic, however, it's more safe to believe that the spirit just wants to be left alone. So don't go in the attic. Or else. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So for our next stop, we're going to move to our neighbor immediately to the south. We're going to North Carolina and its capital city of Raleigh. At the center of downtown in Burke Square stands the North Carolina Executive Mansion, or as it is often called, the Governor's Mansion. A beautiful Queen Anne-style home, construction on the building began in 1883 using materials that mostly originated in North Carolina. The lumber for the oak and pine frame came from across the state. The marble for the steps was mined in Cherokee County, and the sandstone trim originated in Anson County. The bricks that formed the mansion were also molded from North Carolina clay and made by prison labor. Many of the men who uh, many of the men whose forced labor helped build mansion inscribed their name on these bricks, signatures which are still visible today. The mansion was completed in 1891, and the first governor to inhabit the building was Governor Daniel G. Fowle. Some say that Governor Fowle became so enamored with the residents that he decided to stay. Seems he could care less about the subsequent governors and the limits of mortality. The Daniel G. Fowle bedroom sits on the second floor of the building. Fowle was a widower with four children when he took office, and his youngest son had the habit of climbing in bed with him at night to sleep. Fowle, already a substantially proportioned man, found the original bed in the room to be too small to accommodate himself and his child. Not wishing to lose his focus on the affairs of the state because of a lack of sleep, Fowle ordered the construction of an oversized bed that would allow him to comfort his son and get him to sleep. Unfortunately, he didn't get to enjoy the bed for long. Fowl died before completing his term. <laughs> I really want to know who the children were. Yeah. I not find. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, I think I read it, it, I mean, it was very short. I think it was only three months. Yeah, it was really short. I think he took office and was um, passed away three months late. So, very, very short term. Tragically short. Now, um, uh, a later inhabitant of the mansion found the bed that gave Fowle such comfort to be the source of a strange series of encounters. Governor Bob Scott, who served in the office from 1969 to 1973, spoke to North Carolina folklorist Richard Walter about his experiences in the mansion for Walter's book, North Carolina Legends. According to Governor Scott, he had chosen Daniel G. Fowle room as his bedroom when he moved into the mansion. But Scott was considerably taller than Fowl, and he found the governor of Fowl's bed to be uncomfortable to sleep in. They're just woken enough to for a seat. <laughs> Scott insisted on purchasing another North Carolina-made bed, this one from Crafty Furniture in Mevis. 
Mebane. Mebane? Mebane? And being in an age of less extravagant government expenditures, he paid for it with his own money. He had the governor foul bed and moved out of the room. Shortly after moving the bed, Governor Scott and his wife were reading in bed when around 10 o'clock they heard a strange knocking coming from the wall behind them. Scott and his wife thought, we love it, assuming that it was just water running through what were almost century-old pipes. But the next night, the knocking returned at the same time, and the night after, and the night after that. Scott asked for the maintenance staff to see if something could be done about the pipes. He was surprised to discover that there were no pipes running behind that section of the wall. And even if there were, there was no one running the water at that time, uh, at the time that the knocking sound occurred. Governor Scott and his wife remained puzzled by the knocking until the day when Governor Fowle's daughter came calling. The late governor's elderly daughter had been living just down the street for many years, and it was her habit to pay a courtesy call on new governors when they took office. And according to Governor Scott, part of the social call involved her demanding an answer to the question, is father's bed still in his room? Did the late governor's daughter know that her father's spirit may still have been gliding around the mansion? Did she think that everyone, even a ghost, deserves a comfortable bed? Absolutely. Well, insisting that he did not believe in ghosts, Governor Scott nevertheless confessed that he had named the knock, which occurred every night at 10 o'clock, as the ghost of Governor Fowler. The Scots believed that this was the spirit of uh, Governor Fowler communicating his displeasure at his bed being moved each night around 10 p.m. Despite this, Governor Scott refused to replace the original bed, so the knocking continued every evening until he left office. Upon his departure, Fowler's bed was replaced um, uh, to the executive bedroom, and the knocking immediately ceased. That is until 1993, when Governor Jim Hunt claimed the knocking had returned, despite never changing anything in the room at all. He's quoted as saying, I've heard him. I'm trying to establish contact with this ghost. I haven't done that yet. Two decades later, Governor McCrory is also on record saying he believes the ghost of Fowl is still there. (laughs) Uh, He said, he's a good ghost. I talk to him every night. I know he hears me. I don't get spooked. Other people do. The former governor commented that there had been discussions on literature, philosophy, and many other topics with Governor Fowl. It's possible Governor Fowle feels he still has some work to do at the mansion, or maybe he just enjoys being there with the other governors, especially when his daughter made it a point to come by and make sure his bed was still where it belonged in the house, and to see that his portrait was hanging amongst those of the other governors of North Carolina's past. I mean, Washington still shows up in his room. Yeah. Why can't this governor show up in his room? Like, politics aside, I've always found that governors are pretty neat to go (laughs) <laughs> hey, mom, sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so much for later tonight. <laughs> we promise we won't knock on the walls up at the cottage at night. No, we won't. <laughs> I'm not promising the cat quote. I can't make any promise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump down to Texas. Now, Texas has two stories, so this is just one of them. The palace is what it is. Wait, the Spanish palace. Yes, it is. Oh, it is. Okay, I'm sorry. We're doing both Texas. Too. It was the second Georgia one that moved. Ah, okay. All right. So deep in the heart of Texas, we land in the capital city of Austin at the governor's mansion, which was constructed in 1854. It is the fourth oldest governor's residence in America that has been the home of every Texas governor since its opening. Prior to the construction of the Texas governor's mansion, there were no permanent residents established for the state's governor. 
In fact, the first four governors lived in boarding houses and hotels. In February of 1848, the Texas legislature authorized the use of public funds to annually leave the home for a governor. So six years later, the legislature was called upon again. This time, they approved the, uh, were to approve that the building, um, the building of a designated home. <laughs> uh, now, self-taught architect Abner Hugh Cook was awarded the job of supervising the building of the Greek Revival Mansion. In June of 1856, Elijah M. Pease moved into Texas, uh, moved into Texas's first and only governor's mansion. In the year 1970, the governor's mansion was listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and in 1974, the mansion became a U.S. National Historic Landmark and presents an environment that is rife with history and some associated tales of the paranormal sort. Our first ghost, the Texas Scout. Now, a young scout of the Texas Rangers had fallen in love with a Comanche girl, and not everyone was keen on the young couple. Certainly not the girl's father, who was terrified the scout was stealing his daughter. Now, forced to keep their relationship secret, the young couple would sneak around on the grounds of the mansion together. This kept their affair well enough, until the girl's father caught them red-handed. He approached the scout in a fit of rage. Rumor is that he was so angry he killed his daughter's true love, and distraught, the girl stabbed herself in the heart. She was so unwilling to return to her father that she took her life above her beloved's body. <clears throat> the two spirits now sneak around the grounds together, much as they did in life. Specters spot them hand in hand, reunited forever in death. Little Romeo and Juliet for you there. Great. Then we have the governor's nephew. And let's just say this is not quite so romantic. Mm-hmm. While Pendleton Moore was governor during the Civil War, uh, the governor's nephew had come to the mansion for a visit. Coincidentally, the governor's wife had her niece staying at the property as well. Uh, the legend has it that the nephew fell instantly for the niece. The niece enjoyed the boy's attention, but that was it. Didn't feel anything bad. Yeah. Didn't reciprocate. Anyway, astoundingly, he actually proposed to her the next day. He watched in devastation while she rejected his advance. His tragedy doesn't end there. I know they moved fast back then, but That was really fast. Wow. <laughs> um, now, he, uh, of course, went up to his room, and a gunshot was heard emanating from the upstairs later that night. A staff member who cautiously entered the boy's bedroom discovered his lifeless body laid out in the bed. The governor's nephew had committed suicide. Since his abrupt and tragic death, staff members have avoided the boy's bedroom. The boy's sobbing moans can be heard emanating from the room. Phantom footsteps pace around it when there's no one there. And in the years immediately following the boy's death, his moaning and wailings were so disturbing that the successor to Governor Murr, uh, Governor Andrew Hamilton, sealed up the room with plaster to try to contain the noise. For decades after the room was sealed, a detailed manifest of the furniture and objects contained in the house always listed one ghost in the ominous bricked-up room. Do not open. Capitals, other lives, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. It is kind of interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's on the manifest. It's on this manifest. You know, they, they, it is a government property. They keep track of every little trinket in the house. So and everything they do to the house. Everything they do to the house. And on page. Year after year, governor after governor, on the last page of the manifest, do not open. Mm-hmm. So in 
So for a long series of donors, they hated that. They didn't open it. Until they didn't. And there's always going to be one. There's always. Somebody decided to remodel in the 20th century, and as you can guess, the cries resumed, and they've been heard ever since. Those sensitive to the residual energy claim that he's most active on Sundays, which is actually the day of the week he took his life. Uh, and a lasting reminder of an obsession so fierce that over 150 years of Texas governors and their staffers have had to on a related note, the specter of Governor Murray himself is said to stock the mansion and the surrounding property. His tenure as governor was relatively short and extremely tumultuous. It would be fair to say that his flight to Mexico after the fall of the Confederacy and his subsequent death due to tuberculosis in August of 1865 might have left him with a wee bit of a pinch business. Oh, he was uh, he was a piece of work. Yeah, he was. Very on his. Even after the fall of the Confederacy, after Lee surrendered, he gave a fiery speech to the citizens of Texas, encouraging them to continue to keep the fight up. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, war-weary yeah. Texans then, no. said no thanks, mm-hmm. and then the Union Army starts rolling into town, and he's like, I'm out. Yes. All right, so then we have Sam Houston. Um oh. Chris likes this. Have you ever heard? <laughs> yes, I do actually. You really like. You literally started clapping at the end. I, I, I really should have heard it when he's like, "I really like this guy." <laughs> this, this was. This was I, I like this one. So anyway, so yes, of course, the famous Sam Houston. Now, fun fact: Sam Houston, he actually is a native son of Virginia. He was born just out of the west of here in Rockbridge County in uh, 1793, and only left when his family moved to the Tennessee frontier when he was a teenager. So. He spent some of his youngest and most formative years here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, so there's some bias going on. Well, maybe a little <laughs> bit, but, but get this. So now, Houston's storied life saw him live with, uh, saw him live with, advocate for, and become close to Native American tribes, particularly the Cherokee. He served as an officer in the War of 1812, as a senator and governor for the state of Tennessee, and as commander-in-chief of the Texas Army during the Texas Revolution. He also served as president of the Republic of Texas, oversaw the desired annexation of Texas into the Union in 1845, was one of the inaugural U.S. senators from the state of Texas, and fiercely advocated against succession from the Union as governor of Texas leading up to the Civil War. He was stripped of his office after the succession of Texas and later died in Huntsville in 1863. The man led an absolutely fascinating life, but it uh, did end on a sour note with his beloved state of Texas standing apart from the United States. Now, for him, trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. point. But <laughs> anyways, now perhaps it is this sour note that has led Houston's spirit to linger on at, uh, you know, at his last government residence. A bit of unfinished business that has kept him, uh, has him keeping an eye on things since his passing. The bedroom that Sam Houston used in the Texas governor's mansion is visited by Houston's apparition to this day. On a fun little side note, in the 1980s, Governor Mark White returns to the mansion late one evening with his wife, Linda. In the hallway outside their bedroom, Linda noticed that someone had left the light on above Governor Houston's portrait. Thinking little of it, she switched it off and went to bed with her husband. The following morning, she found the switch back on. Sam Houston's image fully illuminated once again. There should not have been anyone around to turn the light back on, 
And even if there was, why would they turn the light on over the portrait? Puzzled, Linda inquired amongst the staff and security, and none of them had any knowledge about who would have turned on the light or why. This was during the time when Texas was celebrating its sesquicentennial. Perhaps Sam Houston felt the need to remind the current residents of the governor's mansion of his pivotal role in cementing the existence of Texas as we know it today. Yeah. He was... Oh, yeah. He was... Uh, he is really neat. I mean, of course, you know, everybody associates him with Texas. The city of Houston is named after him, the fourth largest metropolitan area in the United States. Um, and I would not have made that connection. Hmm? I would not have made that connection. You didn't know? No, yeah, yeah. It's named after Sam Houston. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. I just wouldn't have made the connection. Yeah. Um, yeah, it did. So, I mean, it's, uh, and that was, do you want to talk about the, uh,
had moved the fortified Presidio away from the original position a half mile downriver just across the San Antonio River from the Alamo itself. The Marquis had big plans for the Presidio. He dreamed of a large square-shaped fortification with sharp bastions to ward off the enemy. To make it happen, the Marquis needed quality material. Naturally, he wrote the King of Spain, asking for 25,000 adobe bricks to be sent over from the motherland. And then, because the bricks were obviously not enough, the Marquis also asked for 40 more laborers so the construction of the Presidio could begin. It seems that the Crown agreed. Don't get that very often, because soon after the necessary items were shipped over from Spain and construction began. Although the keystone above the entrance doors claims construction didn't finish until 1749, it's believed that the effective completion of the fortification had come sometimes earlier than that. The Comandancia, as it was known, functioned as the office and residence for the captain of the entire Presidio. By the 1760s, the Presidio was in charge of the defense for five of the local missions, as well as the Villa de Fernando de Bajar, and it also supplied guards for the missions and for important dignitaries. The capital of Spanish Texas moved to San Antonio in 1773, and the Comancia became home to a long string of Spanish captains. While the Presidio had once acted as a line of defense, at this time it also became a place where justice was served. In the courtyard behind the main building, approximately 35 people were hanged for their crimes. The site was one of bloodshed and battle where the captains protected the villa against raiding Native American tribes. The last captain to live at the Presidio was Jose Manchea, and he sold the property to Ignacio Perez, a prominent merchant and landowner, in 1804. Perez paid 800 pesos for the property, which equaled approximately $55,000 at that time. Big money. Perez, uh, Perez's family continued to own the property until the 1860s throughout the Texas Revolution and the subsequent annexation to the United States. After the 1860s, the Perez descendants began to lease the old Presidio out. One of the first to acquire the property was E. Herman Hulkett, uh, who happened to be the founder of the village of Comfort, Texas. He lived at the Presidio with his wife, Emma, and even after Elskett passed, his widow continued to make the old fortification home until the early 1900s. By then, the property had fallen into disrepair. Different businesses utilized the Presidio's various rooms for commercial purposes. It began as a tavern that sold nickel beer, a produce market, a tailor shop, a pawn shop, a school, and a closer. It was during this period that rumors of ghosts at the Presidio began to spread. Maybe it was the appearance of an ancient building falling apart, losing its pride and beauty, that ignited the rumors of ghostly activity about town. This continued uh, into the early 1900s when a local preservationist, Adina Emilia de Zavala, helped return the Presidio to its former glory. In 1915, de Zavala pointed out that the old stone building across the street from City Hall was more than just a decrepit eyesore. Rather, it was the remains of one of the oldest and most important structures in the state so important that she then began to call the Presidio the Spanish Governor's Palace, even though the building was certainly not palatial and it had never been home to one of the Spanish governors. So, admittedly, we're kind of cheating on this one. But it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Now, in 1928, the city of San Antonio acquired the Spanish Governor's Palace and a movement to restore a piece of the city's history and heritage commenced. Since 1931, the Spanish Governor's Palace has functioned as a museum of Spanish colonial history 
and it was listed on Texas Historic Landmark in 1952, and less than 10 years later in 1970, it was named a National Historic Landmark. Despite its renovation and subsequent enshrinement as a museum and national landmark, the Spanish governor's palace was never able to shake the spooky reputation it had developed when it was uh, a worn relic. Since the days when the building was leased to a variety of businesses, reports of paranormal activity have been attached to the property. Apparitions of Native American people standing by the outer walls have been spotted, but also, too, have translucent figures of the Spanish colonials. Those who wander near or stand near the property itself often feel inexplicable chills wash over them, even on the warmest of days. Ghostly air conditioning. Perhaps one of the most haunted parts of the Spanish governor's palace is the old original patio at the rear of the building. Here you can find the Tree of Sorrows. At the time when the Presidio Presidio. Uh, functioned as a St. Antonio, San Antonio's main quarters for justice, it is the alleged tree uh, of sorrows where at least 35 of these criminals were hanged for their crimes. Whether true or false, there are some who claim that the marks from the Titan Road can still be seen on the bark of the branches. Some visitors of the Spanish governor's palace have claimed to see the figures of the condemned swaying below the branches of the tree as if they are doomed to repeat their final moments time and time again. For those who haven't seen the figures themselves, some who have had the opportunity to linger about the property after dark have claimed to see colorful orbs floating about, lighting up this tree uh, with a excuse me, lighting up the tree with an ethereal glow. There are the, uh, then there are the children. Those children have been spotted in the governor's palace. The first being a little girl who makes her presence known in one of the bedrooms. It's uncertain who she is, but visitors of the museum have commented that they felt incredibly cold upon entering that bedroom, and the young girl is, of course, said to haunt there. Even though the, those unaware of the story remark that they feel as though they've been watched the entire time they are in the room, and for the most part, she stays quarantined in this room. She hasn't been sensed elsewhere. The ghost of another young girl has been spotted by the well in the courtyard. Legend has it that she was related to one of the prior governors who visited the Presidio, but upon wandering into the courtyard, courtesy curiosity got the best of the little girl and she stepped too close to the well. You can guess what happened. Failing her fingers along the brick, she... That was inappropriate.
Another tale is rooted in the darkness of the night. A group of robbers had waited until the captain's family had left the property on a trip. They barged through the doors, collecting every valuable item that they could find along the way, gold, silver. They dropped the objects into their bags, continuing to look for more. While the subsequent details have been lost to history, the local lore says that when robbers entered the courtyard, they found that they were not as alone as they thought. A young woman was there, the governess to the captain's children, or perhaps a housemaid. We're not entirely sure. The robbers panicked at the thought of being identified, and they attacked and outnumbered the woman. She was jerked on the ground, her wrists and ankles bound, and helpless, they threw her down the well. Whether she drowned or if the fall killed her, it matters not. Her death would not have been uncovered if it was not for one of the robbers experiencing complete remorse about what he had done. He came forward and confessed his crime. His fate and the fate of his co-conspirators is uncertain, but it most likely involved a length of rope similar to the one used to bind the woman before she was mercifully cast down the well. I gotta say, that well should have been redug several times by now. Bodies. I mean, granted, it, it, some Bodies. Point, at some point, it just became ornamentation. I mean, I'm sure that they wound up getting put on municipal water at some point. Dead bodies in your water source. That's all I gotta say. I mean, you know, like protein. Oh, God. <laughs> I was thinking it, but I'm like, no. I've already said one thing in bad Do we have a set up in the pandemic kit? 
We've had it for like three years. Yeah. And I haven't done much of anything with it. It's on the list. It's on the list. We have our reasons. It is what it is. We won't get there. We won't get there. We've been, all all of these Facebook live shows, they're all cross-posted to Richmond Hunt Media on Facebook. Mm -hmm. There is a page for it. There has like seven whole followers. Uh, you don't want to No, I don't, because we're really not ready to actually get it completely up and running. Yeah, the people, but eventually there will be a podcast there. That eventually. Is the, the people that are following it right now apparently just randomly stumbled upon it somehow. So good on them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're not Patrick? <laughs> he, he might be one of the followers. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. I have to go back and look, but yeah. Yeah, but there, there are plans there, but let's finish this. Yes, yes, yes. We digress. It's because we're at 14, so. Not 14, and we've been drinking. And we've got a lot to go. It's a bit of folly, guys. It's a bit of folly. All right, so moving on from Texas, we are going to drop into Georgia. As a state, Georgia has had a few governor's mansions over the years. Her skills don't stop at breakfast. 
Visitors claim that at noon and again at precisely 5 p.m., the smells of pork and black-eyed peas can fill the air. During uh, October of 1994, the recently exhumed remains of a Confederate captain lay in state for two days during the living history at the museum, or at the mansion, excuse me. Throughout this somber occasion, the comings and goings of visitors were in great number. When the ceremonies were complete and the crowd could left, staff smelled burning potatoes throughout the lower level. The aroma was so strong that the fire department was called in and feared that the wires had been too hot and caught fire after the extensive use over the last few days. The firemen found nothing of concern, but agreed that it did, in fact, smell of burnt potatoes. Seems Molly had been too busy preparing for large crowds that she forgot about her potatoes and accidentally let them burn. Once, while staff were collecting, uh, collaborating in the kitchen, they heard the door to their offices open and close. The door is kept locked to keep visitors to the home out of the office space. <clears throat> After the door seemed to close itself, the surprise continued with the sound of footsteps running down the hall. The staff immediately searched the home, but never found anyone else in the property. In 1994, a Georgia college student had helped cater an elegant dinner at the mansion. When the meal was over, she was mopping the ballroom floor when a lovely woman startled her so much that she dropped her mop. The woman who dressed in a dark day dress without the, uh, without a hoop from the neck <clears throat> the woman was dressed in a dark day dress without a hoop from the 19th century she stood there for several seconds smiled at the student and nodded her head as has been approval before fading away so well, that person got Molly's approval for whatever she was doing with the mom yeah so you don't get blueberry muffins when you go because it smells like it. Apparently. It is kind of. Yeah, because if I smell that, I'm going to want to eat it. As Patrick said, I like potatoes. Do I need to pick a blueberry muffin for Costco? Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't say no to croissants. You never say you always get croissants. I know, but I was going to make banana nut muffins. She probably doesn't saw it happen and then I'm not in town. And mm-hmm. just but you would like blueberry muffins, wouldn't you? Yes, you can get blueberries. This is Molly. Anyway. <laughs> I might be getting one, too. Cake. Okay. So, oh, are you looking at me? <laughs> Would you like cheesecake? I'm not going to eat any cheesecake. I know what we're having after we wrap up here. Yeah. All right. Last story. Last story. <laughs> in New York City. Seriously, this last Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, we were good, but... This is one I thought was really unique, and this is the one as we mentioned, but not stand anymore. Um, so we're taking you to colonial era in New York City, and rather what it actually started as New Netherlands. As the last Dutch uh, Director General, uh, Peter Dunzevant, uh, this was the title Director General is directly the equivalent of what we consider governor. Uh, during his life, Guzman had himself a couple of nicknames, such as Pegleg Peter, Old Silver Nails. These are for the silver studded wooden pegleg that he wore after losing his leg in fighting of the Spanish for the Dutch West India Company in 1644. Now, after returning to the Netherlands, the heel, Guzman was selected by the company to go to New Netherlands, arriving in the colony in 1646. He arrived seeking the, uh, to write the Flammering Colony. Any horse set to work to do what he believed to be God's work. He settled into the home designated as the residence for the Director General 
known as the Great Bowery. It was effectively an executive mansion for the colony. Now, for Suzavon, the home was not sufficient for the purposes of the man in charge of the colony, and he subsequently built a new executive mansion near the center of the colony around 1557. During his time as director general, Suzavon negotiated the purchase of the Great Bowery from the company and giving it the lasting name Suzavon Farm. Despite his best efforts, maintaining the colony proved impossible. The lack of military support, uh, apathetic colonists, the pressures from surrounding colonies forced Suzanne to relinquish control to the English in 1664. When the English moved in, they dubbed the executive mansion that Suzanne built. Despite surrendering the colony, Suzanne and the other Dutch colonists were allowed to stay if they wanted to withhold civil rights. Suzanne ultimately did retire to the farm that he had purchased from the Dutch West India Company. But it seems he seems to never have quite let go of the executive mansion that he had built for the colony. He passed away in 1673 at the age of 80, and his body was laid to rest in a private chapel on his estate. His spirit, however, started to make appearance at the executive mansion that he had built, starting almost immediately after he passed away. Housemates and workers reported to seeing the peg-laid ghost hobbling around the property time and again, at least until the mansion burned in 1744. On that day, Suzanne was seen wandering the ruins, sadly assessing the damage. Despite the loss of the mansion, Suzanne wasn't quite ready to let go of the mortal realm. By 1799, Suzanne's descendants had donated the estate, including the private chapel, to the Episcopalian Church. They subsequently built St. Mark's Church on Suzanne's private chapel, and almost immediately people started to hear the distinct sound of a person with a peg leg ambling up and down the aisles of the church, sometimes seeing his apparition to accompany the noise. He would sometimes add a dramatic flair to his appearance. In 1865, a sexton was scared out of his wits when Suzanne appeared in the church and hobbled toward him. Upon hearing the sound and determining it was Suzanne's ghost, the sexton bolted, screaming into the night as his pursuer hobbled closer. Later that night, the bell at St. Mark's started to toll. Concerned parishioners rushed to the church only to find it locked. When the members of the congregation finally opened the door, the ringing stopped. Only the coffin to rope was hanging from the bell, and no one could come close enough to reaching the tired end of the rope. The congregation stand out to search for the church from steeple to cellar in search of who could have rung the bell. They found nothing, except the rest of the torn bell rope on Suzanne's crypt. That was. <laughs> In 1953, the last direct descendant of Suzanne was buried in the family crypt at St. Mark's, and the vault was sealed. People hoped that Suzanne's spirit would finally come to an eternal rest. Van Schaak Suzanne, the last descendant, gave instructions that a concrete should be poured inside the vault to permanently seal it. Some of the mourners claimed that they heard tapping sounds of the peg leg during the entombment of his last failed descendant. Apparently, the end of the line has not meant the end of Susan Bosco's activity. In one final appearance on Christmas Day of 1995, the congregation was finishing their morning prayers when they heard the record singing in the reception room. They rushed to observe a figure in a Dutch period clothing with a wooden leg disappearing into the walls. There was only one entrance to the room and no possibility of escape. The bowl of holiday punch that was awaiting the congregation was clearly down an inch. Somebody got deep into their cups. 
somebody would enjoy the footballing. Yes, that was, we definitely kind of went a little further afield because we focused more on um, the governor. Yes. He certainly haunted the governor's residence after his yes. passing, but. It was just fun. <laughs> it was just fun, and I think I, I, I've said it before. It's our show, so. Yes. I was like, that's just an ball one. It's fun. So we did. We did. Now, yeah, unfortunately, that, that governor's mansion has long since, well, I mean, it burned down, so yes. there's that. But, but the church is there. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you could go Saint, and see the church. St. Mark's, which, good old church, literally old church. Yes. Um, but, yeah, so two weeks from now, we're going to be doing um, on the, uh, Executive Mansion Part 2. Yes. And between now and then, we do have that haunted dinner, which is going to be about haunted executive mansions, and it's, again, we got so much material to work with. Yeah, we'll probably touch on some of what we talked about tonight, but we got a lot, a lot more to go with. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what it is. It's, for some reason, we, this month is executive mansion month for us. Because but. it's presidential weekend month. There you so, go. executive mansion. So, but, yeah. And since we've already done the White House, I decided we were going to do Governor Mansion. Yeah. Although, yeah, the White House will be talked about on our executive mansions because it is an executive mansion. Yeah. But, yeah. So, my, my mother came up with the idea, the spectral rabbit hole. Mm. And are we going to keep it to ghosts or are we going to keep it everything? We'll discuss all <laughs> I mean, it's spooky stuff, the spectral rabbit hole. Yes, we, I mean, I we, can, we can have one of each. Yes, we are nerds. Nerds would like to talk about Proudly. Proudly bearing the nerd badge right there. Yeah. All right. But, yeah, we'll see you all in two weeks for the Executive Mansion. So, again, come out for our haunted dinner. February 18th. Saturday, February 18th. And it is limited space. Very limited space. So, yep, the, the format is just a touch different than what we've done in the past. But, hey, we've had three years to think about it, and we think that we've made a couple of improvements. So it's going to be a, going to be a good time. We're looking forward to being there. Our friends at Patrick Henry are looking forward to having us back. And, uh, yeah, awesomeness. Yes. So, it may be nice to leave your options open to beer away from spectral things. Veer, veer away from spectral things. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, so. But. Well, um, if there's anyone in Alaska, Alaska Comic Con, Fairbanks, Alaska, it is on the 25th to the 26th. It'll be a really good time. Lots of the comic dudes. It's mostly comics, but, you know, it's something to do if you're in Fairbanks, Alaska in it's, February. It's an excuse to go to Fairbanks, Alaska. Yes, yeah, it's true. Oh, no, I'm going next year. Uh, <laughs> we we might have to block off some time in our schedule too. Yeah, Alaska's beautiful. It is. We really want to get back. Yeah, that that that, that cruise really whetted the appetite that we took this past summer. So, and yes, I know it gets very cold there in the winter. Oh yeah. I I grew up in New York, so I know I it, it gets cold. Oh yeah. And there's yes. Uh, Alex wants to know: Will there be an Ireland episode in March? Uh, no. We're not doing Ireland this year? 
We've done Ireland every year. And I have to readjust. So. <laughs> As I have it right now, no, but I can marry it down. We have it. We so have, what do I have? From my understanding, you are planned very far out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, right now I have North Dakota and Nevada for March, but we can. Nah, you should stay some island in there. Yeah. We, can, we can move Nevada and switch that up to. Push uh, everything back a couple weeks. Yeah, I'll be going to North Dakota. They get overlooked with that. Yeah, I'll move Nevada to Maine. Good deal. But, yeah, we've, we've done, you might, know, it's not our place burning down, I promise. But Remember, we're friends with the fire department. We're right yeah. Yes, our, our lovely neighbors at the fire department are just about to go by from the south. So bear with that for a moment. But, yeah, we, we've done, um, in, in March, three years running now, 2020, 2021, 2022, we've done an episode on Haunted Ireland. As a matter of fact, that was the very first Facebook Live that we ever did because we had no clue what we were doing. Um, so is this Ireland Part 4? This would be Ireland Part 4, but if you go back and check the archives, you might be hard-pressed to dig up Ireland 1. Remember that we did that on our phone, and so yeah. we did it in, like, portrait profile and all that. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible, but we had no clue what we were doing. So. It was fun. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we, we certainly had fun doing it. I mean, we, had, we also had nothing else to do at that point in time because... The, we are bored. <laughs> the, the, the virus, which we shall not name. Anyways, but yeah, so yeah, we uh, granted we still technically we still really still don't, still don't know what we're doing. I mean that we're we just kind of wing it and sit here and drink and tell stories and make inappropriate jokes. <laughs> sometimes make inappropriate jokes. I I sincerely apologize. Yeah. But anyways, yes. Was that in the cross? No, 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 Thank you, Alex. Um, so that will be on March 20th. Best be there, Alex. March 20th. <laughs> right after St. Patrick's Day. And before the Churchill Irish. Which is on the same weekend as Galaxy Gun. It is, again. Second that year is, in a row. That is a lot. It is. and going to be a very busy weekend. We will. Hopefully, be extremely busy. Hopefully, yes. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We won't get into it yet because things still are possibly shaking out, but could be good things coming. But yeah, anyways, um, now we're kind of rambling a little bit. So now it's time to say bye-bye. Yep, bye. We'll go ahead and we'll wrap things up for this evening. Thank you all again for watching us again as we sat here and drank something a little on the stronger side than usual. So. Yeah, this is Molly, y'all, over at Rich Brown. Like well, yeah. Or is it off the tap now? It's probably off tap now. That's really sad. Yeah, you missed out. It'll, <laughs> it'll be back in like ten months. It's, yeah. I mean, it's their it's their Christmas brew, and well, we they can, do it for Christmas this year. They did it for years. I thought it was out before Christmas. Yeah, I didn't see it, but maybe they advertised it after. I could be wrong. Anyway. Anyway. Moving on. Anyway, moving on. We'll uh, we'll be back here in two weeks. You can come catch us at the Lawn Dinner at Patrick Henry's on February 18th. And 
Tours. We got all, we got stuff going on. So as always, feel free to drop us a note anytime. Happy to hear from y'all. And oh, <laughs> yes, thank you. My favorite jersey. I I, I do like this. <laughs> You're important. Our friends at the graveyard geeks. So. Oh, hey guys. Hey. But yes, so uh, and I do apologize because we could have had them on when we did. The Witches Part Two. I didn't realize until I got into editing the script though that it was basically entirely about witch girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we'll just have I, to do another cemeteries episode. And I and I edited that at the last minute, so there will be more cemeteries. There's, oh yeah. There's always more cemeteries. So with that, as always, feel free to drop us a note anytime. We will be diving into cheesecake shortly. And. <laughs> <laughs> um, cheesecake. Thank you all for watching, and uh, have a good night, y'all. Bye. Bye. This is a very long outro. <laughs> I can really ramble.